And yet, when you think about what a mom does with a kid, a mom gives feedback every day, every day. She doesn't wait for the end of the year performance evaluation to say, Matt, Josh, you misbehaved this year. You're not getting any present for Christmas, right? Mom will let you know right away, no uncertain term, what you're doing wrong. And she does it from a place of love. She does it and she still loves you unconditionally. And she does it because she wants you to be the best grown-up version of yourself possible. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing really well. How are you? I am fantastic. Wow, a little upward lift there. Towards you like that? One. I do. Always <laughs> like the nice little surprises you add. <laughs> Trying to keep and the variable amount of A's that are in the word fantastic. Right, right, right. Um, well, so I have a question for you. Okay. Do you remember a lesson that you've learned from your mom that you still use today? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, my mom is a uh, clinical psychologist, so she's she's a therapist, and for uh, you know, since the beginning of her career, she has she's just been helping people, uh, helping people improve their lives, helping people get better, helping people uh, get treatment when they need it. And I think that I don't know if that's like one singular lesson, but maybe like one like like maybe overarching lesson of of whatever you do in life help people to improve your lives i i don't i don't even think that the number of people that she's helped over the last several decades can you know can even easily be counted uh but i know that all those individual people were positively impacted well and think about what you do now right you help organizations you know, improve their guest experience. And, you know, your, your book is certainly a big part of that. So a lot of what you do is about helping others. Thank you. Yeah. It's nice to look at it this way. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. What about you? Um, I think one of the things that has always stuck with me about what my mom would say to me, um, if I would start a new school and a new job, and she would always say, did you find some people you could be friends with? And that was like her her thing. Like you got to find your people, kind of find your tribe. And um, so I don't know if subconsciously now, if I go into a new situation, I'm looking for those people. Like even networking, you and I have talked about networking a lot. And maybe that's even in the back of my mind now as I go into an IAP a networking session or I go into a, a new, you know, working with a new client. Maybe we're not going to be, you know, long time best friends, but we can be friendly. We can we can relate to people on that level, and I think that's something that you know my mom really instilled in me. Isn't she also the one who said, "Hey, Matt, you should go uh, down to Canopy Lake Park and apply for a job"? <laughs> she is absolutely. She she also after my first book was just about ready to go out. She says, 
what's your second book going to be about? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, a lot of well, influence for mom for me. Well, the, the reason I asked that is because you went to Canopy, you got a job and then built an amazing career in the industry. And so many of your best friends are within the industry. So it's almost like like the really big, hey, did, did you make some friends? Did you find a career path where you're going to meet some unbelievable people over the rest of your life? <laughs> absolutely. Hadn't thought about that connection, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I think the reason why you're asking is because our guest today is Valerie Cockrell, who she's a leadership coach. She's a training facilitator with Cockrell Consulting Group. She was part of the opening team at Disneyland Paris, or actually, I guess we should say she was part of the opening team at Euro Disney, because it wasn't called Disneyland Paris when it first opened. And she has just released a book called Manage Like a Mother, which is a leadership book. Uh, Sounds uh, unbelievable. Sounds so inspiring. And all of the leadership lessons are lessons that she learned as a mother with with her children, as well as with several uh, stories and examples and, and case studies as well. Well, and what's interesting is she takes those lessons that she learned as a mother. And then she says, oh, when I look at what I'm doing as a leader in an organization, it's the same thing. It's like you and I talking about guest and employee experience. It's the same thing. So I found that really fascinating to to hear the parallels of those. And it makes complete sense in terms of how a mother will, you know, invest in their children, like in terms of even reading at night. You know, I never made that connection that the more you read to a child, the better they're going to, you know, do in school. And then that helps their career. I mean, that's a really long-term vision and an investment that a parent makes in their child. And so you think about that from a leadership perspective, are we creating that kind of, that kind of inspiration for people to say, this is what's possible in your career here. Um, So I think that's, that's one lesson that I take away from that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she makes it clear because you and I, we're both men. And, you know, she stresses, she says, you do not need to be a mother to read to read this book and to learn from it. You don't even need to be a woman to to read and learn from it, that men can gain so many, uh, so many examples and, and so many traits from it that are directly applicable in their roles as as leaders as well. And she also talks about the fact that her outlook and a lot of her experiences really stem from the fact that she was an expat, right? She was born in France. She worked in the U.S. for a while, went back to France, has been back and forth, has been all over the world. And you really get a sense of kind of what's important to people and you get to see different cultures in action. And I think it really helps you appreciate the fact that on some level, we're all the same, right? In terms of being human beings, but there are cultural differences. And and I think it's important to recognize and appreciate those as you're going to work with different people uh, in different uh, facets of an organization. Yeah. And she says everyone should be an expat at some point in their life because the amount of the amount of education that you can get from that and, and learning how to work with other people, regardless if they are of your same nationality or not, same background or not, same culture or not, uh, that it it just makes makes it, uh, it I would say just it just makes your life more more rich, right? Mm-hmm. To to be able to uh just have so many wonderful experiences and learn so much about people who are different from yourself. Absolutely. Um, One of the last things that uh, we'll kind of touch on before we get to this interview is she did talk about, you know, bridging the gender gap. And I really felt like it was great that she started off by saying, 
you know, women have to do their part. It's not just about men anointing them and saying you should be in this leadership role. Like women have to speak up and have to get the education and have to be ready for those roles and ready for those opportunities and, you know, do the things that will help them stand out and not just wait on someone else to hand that to them. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. And then, and then she kind of draws those parallels back to manage like a mother that when, if someone goes on maternity, maternity leave and they're caring for a child, they're caring for a newborn. Now they have a child. They've just gained a whole new set of skill sets that they can take back uh, to their workplace. And that might not be on a resume. You know, that doesn't look like a, a previous job or your work history, but, uh, you know, she talks about kind of that, that importance of, of recognizing where the skills are, not necessarily what the experience is. Absolutely. Well, speaking of experience, should we get to this experience with Valerie? Let's do it. Hey, Valerie, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are so excited to talk to you today. How are you? I am great. Matt and Josh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to um, start the conversation with you all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so to kick this off, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about your background and your career. Well, as I'm sure your audience will pick up real quickly, I have a French accent. So born and raised in uh, southeast of France. And um, when I was about 16, I was always a very curious child. And I knew there was a whole big world out there, which I was eager to go and, and discover. However, I was very well aware of the fact that if I wanted to do that, I had to learn English. So right before I graduated from high school, uh, I was kind of young. I was about 16 and a half. And I applied to be an au pair in London. And I literally moved to London with five words of English. I could say, my name is Valérie. I'm French. And that was it. And I uh, lived in London for a year and a half. And that was a really uncomfortable and difficult thing to do. However, it turned out to be the one decision that changed the entire course of my life because I, I went back to France after that, finished my studies, and that led, but my English was so good that that led me to uh, a job with Disney at the French Pavilion at Epcot with a one year visa. So I did this, which was, you know, you're you're in your your late teens or early 20 and you get that opportunity. You're not going to pass this. You know, you, you're like, OK, sign me up. And little did I know that about three years later, at that point, I was back in France working for a bank. I had graduated, finished all my studies, and I thought my career was going to be in banking. And one day I got a call from Disney and they said, you know, in about a year and a half from now, we're going to open a park in Paris. And you know Disney, you know American culture, you speak English, we would love to hire you. And it literally took me three seconds to say, yep, sign me. Where do I sign? You know, And they sent me training in Florida again. So that was my second visit to Florida. I was there for about six months, met my future husband, my Prince Charming right there. And uh, we both uh, relocated to France for the opening of the park about six months before the park opened in Paris. Uh, Dan was also on the task force to open the park in, in France. So we were there for five years. We married there. We um, Our oldest son was born in Paris. And then we relocated to the U.S. in 97. And we kept on working for Walt Disney World. But but this that one decision when I was 16, somehow I had this idea that you know what Let, let's let's just learn english because i know this if i want to go and travel the world this is going to help me and as hard as as uncomfortable it was uh it was a great decision you know sometimes you take chances you take a risk and uh you take yourself out of your comfort zone and that turns out to be a great decision so 
So Valerie, I'm curious, um, you know, a lot of people kind of dream about opening a new park and you got to open the park there in Paris. What was that like being part of that team to open up the, the new Disney park? You know, it was really interesting because first of all, we had, I don't know how many nationalities, but suddenly you have 12,000 cast members who are trying to open this park, April 12, 1992. And all these nationalities working together makes for an interesting um, some interesting challenges, uh, let's be honest. Uh, we all have different approach to work, uh, different approach to leadership. So, and and also we know that the Disney culture is, is you know, something that they try to uh, bring with them when they open a new property overseas. So trying to educate somebody uh, on Disney culture and American culture and this new theme park concept, which, you know, if you remember in 92, there really wasn't any theme park per se in Europe. So here we are opening this park outside Paris. So we did a lot of things well. We did some things not so well. And I remember I was kind of on the fence for me because I knew Disney and I knew American culture, but I also being French, I could see where there were some, some issues. And sure enough, you know, we learned a lot in the process. I think for Disney got a lot better. That was the, really the first park that they opened overseas because Japan, as we all know, is a franchise, you know, it's run by the Oriental Land Company. But Disney was uh, in, in Paris was the first park that Disney ran entirely. And you know, having to go through this um, process and bring what was a very uh, successful park in Orlando, Florida, and doing the exact carbon copy of that outside Paris, thinking we were going to do the exact same thing, it was going to be a success. Well, that turned out to be a bit of a mistake because European culture, we don't work the same way, we don't have the same expectations. Now I could we could do a whole podcast around this, but just one one uh, story that will um, illustrate what I'm what I'm explaining here. Um, as you remember, in the Magic Kingdom, they don't serve alcohol. Well, back then they didn't serve alcohol in any Magic Kingdom around the world. And now we're opening in Paris. We have these beautiful restaurants, table service restaurants, and then you have these waiters that come up and these families, French families, sit down. And they look at the menu and they choose the entry. And then this, the next thing that comes is, can I see the wine card or the wine menu? And then the waiter will say, well, I am very sorry. Uh, here in France, uh, we don't serve at the Magic Kingdom. We don't serve uh, alcohol. And French people went crazy. You know, like, what? You you tell me I, can have, I cannot have my glass of wine with my lunch. So needless to say, within a couple of months, they changed the policy and the magic kingdom at design paris was the first magic kingdom ever to serve alcohol because of this cultural difference and its cultural expectation so that example is just one of many 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 other examples of things that we had to learn from and overcome during the opening of the park so it, it was really an incredible school and an incredible opportunity to be part of that uh, not only professionally because we got opportunities we wouldn't have gotten otherwise and also because we just learned a lot through the process so we were there five years and it was just an incredible five years when I visited Disneyland Paris, which is about 12 years or so ago, when I was planning for the visit, all my friends said, oh, Josh, while you're there, make sure you get a picture on Main Street in front of the castle with a beer or holding <laughs> a glass of wine because it, it was such a novelty, right? So I I did. I got a, I got a Cronenberg 1664 and asked a cast member to take my picture and she was 
so confused why <laughs> this man traveling by himself that was uh, in, in Europe for work, you know, wanted a picture, needed a picture with the beer in front of the castle. But it was a it was a funny moment for me. But it, I, I, you know, I can I can completely see um, just kind of the the cultural difference that it needs to be distinctly Disney, but also distinctly French as well, and being able to meld those two. On a similar kind of note there, you talked about, uh, you know, 12,000 cast members of different nationalities, different backgrounds, all coming together. Uh, combining that with your background of spending the time in London, spending the time in Florida, did did you feel that that was an advantage that you, you know, you had already had experience leaving your country, being able to experience others out of the world coming, you know, coming to the United States uh, and then being able to to now, uh, do, you know, do, does that make it easier to then, I would say, embrace or adapt or work with other cultures as well, nationalities? Yeah, totally, totally. I'll I tell you what, once you've been an expat, you will always be an expat. And what I mean by this is you develop a critical eye and not necessarily a negative you know, but but you develop a critical eye and you notice things. So I remember the first time I lived, when I lived in London, or the first time I lived in the US, I remember thinking, for instance, that maybe Americans were not knowledgeable about, you know, stuff in Europe, or about geography, about history, about a lot of stuff. Because when I worked in the French pavilion, we would get all kinds of weird questions. And then it, and, and your first reaction is that negative thinking, you know, going like, what is wrong with Americans? They don't speak foreign languages. They don't know anything about geography that, you know. And then you realize the size of this country that, you know, okay, for instance, you'll learn French or Spanish or, you know, at school, but you never get to practice it because in America, you drive for five days and you're still in the United States of America and you still speak English. Well, if I'm in France and I learn and I drive for five days and I go to Moscow, I've been through five different countries and I better have a way to communicate with people. So the English that I've learned at school or the Spanish that I've learned, I get to use it. I get to practice it. So I think as, as a result, you find that Europeans, most Europeans speak two or three languages because there's a need for it and we we get to practice it. So that that's the kind of thing that you learn as an expatriate, you learn that it's, and I always say it's not better, it's not worse, it's different. And and you really can um, use that critical eye. You, you use that too when you go back home, by the way, because I remember after my first experience at Disney, going back to France and thinking like, what is wrong with French people? They can't wait in line, they're not disciplined. You know, you, you find all kinds of, of uh, things that could improve. Um, in the French society. So forever now you have this ability to kind of sit on the fence and assess and see the plus and the minuses of each culture. And I wish there were one place in the world where you would say, oh, this is the perfect place. There is no such thing. It's not better. It's not worse. It's different. If we could cherry pick the best of, we could have the perfect place. Unfortunately, we can't do that. So you learn to appreciate the, the little things that are great and you learn to cope and put up with the things that are not so great. And that's, that's what life is. And that's part of the learning. So I think it's a beautiful thing. I tell my children and I can, I tell young people, I said, you have to be an expat once in your life. And it shows you that everybody lives in a different manner. There is so much out there and there's so much value in that diversity and you need to embrace it and learn from it. And uh, sometimes it's hard, but but it's uh, 
it's something that helps you in many, many ways in your professional life and in your life in general. So, Valerie, I'm wondering if we could um, maybe go a little deeper into that that conversation and talk a little bit about leading different cultures. So for example, you know, you have people from the U.S. that we'll just say maybe are led in a certain way. And then are there differences when you're leading a French team or, you know, a team from another, another um, culture? I'm curious if you can kind of give us some insight into those kind of things. Well, there's a couple of examples I can give you. Uh, first of all, um, the difference between the French and Amer American, there is one thing that I think um, exemplifies, uh, really uh, describes this very well. Um, we always say that Americans live to work. In America, people, their job is very much their identity. This is how they define themselves. In France, people work to live. Their priority is living and having a good life. And you can know somebody in France for 10 or 15 years and only vaguely know what they do for a living because this is not how people describe themselves. This is not how they identify themselves. In America, you meet somebody within the first five minutes, hey, what do you do for a living? And I work for this company or you know whatever because that's part, so much part of their identity. So that means that in practice, in the work environment, I wouldn't say the commitment is not there for on the French side, but they they approach work in a totally different way. I think the level of engagement and ambitions and ambition that you see in America, you you may not see it in France because people have these other things. I think the better French people are better at balancing uh, their life. And and um, I generalize, right? You, every so often you're going to find somebody who's who doesn't uh, fall in these criteria. But generally, I think French people will be more uh, engaged in their life. In you know, you talk with French people around the table; they're going to talk about the food and the wine and where they go on vacation, and you know, and not so much about their career. That's just not how they define themselves. So that's interesting. And then, in in terms of a tactical thing, uh, one of the thing I discovered is, and maybe this is particular to Disney culture. Um, feedback or negative things is something that is very subtle in America. You, you, you know, you have to read between the lines and, and in Europe, we're very blunt. We will tell, I remember presenting a project to the vice president of merchandising at Disneyland Paris, and he was a Frenchman. And by then, by that point, we had a lot more French people and most of the task force had left and returned back to the U.S. And I remember presenting this thing and he told me, well, this is never going to work. So you need to start from scratch and, you know, start over. And it was pretty blunt. And being a French person, I was okay with that. Now, take the same situation a couple of years later, me working at Walt Disney World now in an American environment. And I remember a vice president, we were working on the Millennium Project at Epcot, which involved a lot of uh, rehabbing a lot of stores and stuff. And I remember her saying to me, Valerie, have you thought about this? And I responded, I'm, I'm not sure what I gave her as an answer, but I was a little bit dismissive of what she said. And somebody who was a good friend and fortunately somebody who was very comfortable giving me feedback said, Valerie, when the vice president tells you, have you thought about this? You, that means you really need to consider and you really you really should be doing it. And I'm, I was confused. I'm like, why wouldn't she say so? And it's like, well, that's not the way we work here. So I had to learn to adapt to this and be more careful and pay attention to those little signals, you know. Mm. 
I think my biggest takeaway there is that Americans can learn so much from the French work culture or European in general. You know, just from the, you know the first way you said of of just uh, you know a, a, what is it? Americans work to live. You know, French people uh, the French culture lives to work. You know, we I mean we've had this conversation a few times on the podcast as far as you know we're we're notorious for being workaholics and not taking our vacation time. And I think there's probably even just a you know a, a leadership lesson in there for you know for leaders in the United States to to embrace more of the the lives the the personal interests and hobbies of their employees and if they can amplify that side of their life they'll probably enjoy work more because they're enjoying life more i'm guessing yeah yeah and you know when when you when you burn out and you're tired and you're exhausted you're not a good leader anyway you're not a good leader you're not a good parent you're not you're not a good person uh, you're not creative right? Because you're not creative sitting behind your desk in your office. You're usually creative when you're outside or you're on vacation or you are relaxed or you're exercising or you're in the shower for that matter. But this is the that idea that the fact that we present at work doesn't necessarily mean, mean that we are uh, efficient and we are successful. Uh, you, you could, we could work lesser hours and, and being more um, efficient in, in what we do. So, and I think it's changing. And I think the pandemic maybe has brought that. And also younger generation, you talk to the millennial or Gen Z, they're all about, I have three children who are young professional now, and I can really see the shift where, yes, we want to work, but we want to have a life that uh, is fulfilling and not only through our work, but through our lives and our experience. And we're looking for authenticity and opportunities and experiences so this it is sh shifting, I think, for the better. And organization better line up because this is coming, and and the better allow this and facilitate that. And the pandemic is maybe a has been a silver the silver lining here, is that companies have learned to give more flexible hours, allow for remote work, allow for flexible uh, work, and uh, I think everybody will benefit from this. So you've mentioned your children a couple times, and of course we can't let you go. Uh, uh, in this conversation without talking about your new book, Managing Like a Mother. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that book and kind of how it came about. Well, that was interesting. I I grew up listening to my mother who would always say, I wish I was 20 and I knew what I know now. And, I, and I've heard this so many times, every time I would roll my eyes and go, oh, here we go again. And then now that I'm on the other side of 50, I'm like, you know, I wish I was 20 and I knew what I know now. So um, it occurred to me that maybe I could help younger people, young professional, aspiring leaders, maybe leaders who've, who are just stuck and they they just don't know anymore because being a leader can be very overwhelming. So much is asked of you. You're supposed to excel in so many different areas. So I thought, you know, why don't I, that, that was the first thing is the desire to maybe help others. And then the other thing was, I realized because I stopped working several times when we relocated from Disneyland Paris to the US. And then again, at some point we had three children and I took some time off to focus on the kids. And every time I came back to work, my first instinct being a woman, and it's fairly typical of a woman is to think, am I still relevant? Do I still have what it takes? Can I still be a good leader? And then it occurred to me that the, the skills I was using to raise my kids at home were very similar to the skills, the soft skills that are required of a leader. And that's when the book came about. And I started, the more I started digging into this and the similarities became just obvious, 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm not presenting anything that will revolutionize the, the, the leadership approach. But it will, if you look at it through that lens, through that the lens of, of what a mother does for her kids, it will give you a lot of answers. If you're wondering, what do I need to do to have a team that's motivated and engaged and empowered in my organization is the exact same thing. So once you go over all the competencies and in the book, there's 21 chapters, every single one addresses one competency that is similar and and you can really leverage that and apply that and that will help enhance your leadership approach. So Valerie, at the time of this recording, the book is not yet available, but at the time of the release, it will be. Uh, so curious as far as uh, perhaps what some of uh, maybe the key takeaways are that, uh, that people who get the book and, and read it can expect to pull from it. I think a couple of things. First of all, leadership shouldn't be complicated. It's actually very simple because it's about human interactions. It's about nurturing people, developing them, training them, giving them rewards and recognition, uh, coaching them, giving them feedback, uh, helping them develop, uh, facilitating their uh, them growing in terms of uh, promoting curiosity and promoting diversity in the workplace, all of that. So it's all very simple. Now, let's not confuse simple with easy because whether you're a parent or whether you're a leader, you have to have patience. You have to be uh, uh, diplomatic. You have to be consistent. You have to be in it for the long run. And no matter how many books you read, how many TED Talks, how many uh, you know, people you listen to or you're trying to learn from, they will always, always be a great part of learning on the job because there is no perfect playbook out there that will give you, okay, this is the standard operating procedure. If this happened, this is what you do. It doesn't exist when you're a mother. It doesn't exist when you're a leader, right? You There's always a situation that is unexpected, and, you know, leading people, obviously the diversity of people and personality and talent and skills means that you have to adapt and you have to customize to every single uh, a single one of your team member, much like you would do for your kids. You, I have three kids and let me tell you, the first one was born in France and I'm thinking, okay, when the second one came around, I'm like, oh, been there, done that. Only to find out that the second child does not respond to you know, our interaction, communication, feed, feedback, or, you know, in at all, like the first one. And then the third child comes around and it's the same thing. I realized that yet again, he has a different personality, he has a different aptitude. And so it's the same at work for a leader. You're dealing with a whole bunch of people and they all have different personalities and you you better be able to to adapt and customize your your approach. So one of the things that I wanted to dive a little deeper into is when you say leadership shouldn't be complicated, what I found is that when it does become complicated, a lot of times it's because people have a decision to make, right? Or they're a fork in the road and they're not sure which way to go. And they say, well, it's complicated because of all these different factors. And really what they need to do is make a decision and go down that road. And it may be the wrong path and that's okay. They can always you know, adjust and go back and adapt as you're saying. But what kind of advice or guidance do you give to leaders when they're in those unexpected situations and they do have to make a decision to move forward or you know, they're not sure which way to go, but you gotta do something. I tell you, there's an analogy I often use. Um, 
I play tennis and I love playing tennis. And when my tennis game is off and the ball doesn't la land where it's supposed to land, you get rattled, right? And then your head starts thinking, what, what, what if, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose the match, you know, whatever. And usually what worked for me would be to go back to basic. And literally I would tell myself, for the next game, all you're going to do is bend your knees, keep your eyes on the ball, follow through. That, that was it. Simple. The basic principle of playing of a tennis player. That's the first thing you learn when you when you learn. Well, and that would serve me well. Within a game, because my mind would be relaxed, I would see clear again. My my shot would start falling in and and then I could grow from there. So my recommendation to leaders is when you get in that situation where it feels like the whole world, your head is spinning, you just don't know. Uh, you can't catch your breath. You don't know where to go, and you you can't make that decision. That decision, go back to basics. You know, take care of people. Take it. Go to this basic leadership principle for a little while, and that will get you grounded. And then you can build from there. And then there'll be clarity, and you'll be able to take a decision. And it may end up being a wrong decision, but because you're taking care of the basic things, you are going to be okay. So this is the way I, I simplify it and try to relieve, often we can't make a decision because we can't see through the, the, the forest, right? So going back to basics will bring back clarity. Uh, you know, the, the, the steam will, will uh, go off a little bit so you can just relax and be clear-minded and make an educated decision and probably a, a better decision that if you're trying to make it while you're in the middle of the fray, if that makes sense. So. Mm -hmm. Are there any uh, stories you like to share or examples from leadership of people uh, successfully implementing these concepts, whether it's going back to basics or, or anything else, any other uh, takeaways shared from the book uh, that are just great success stories? Well, I think, you know, many of the competencies of of, uh, of the mothers apply and in, in, in some of them uh, are more obvious and I think uh, they easy to implement for a leader. And I'm thinking uh, among other things about um, uh, giving feedback. That's something that we're very uncomfortable with and everybody tries to you know, avoid it or delay or we tend to procrastinate with this because we are very uncomfortable. Um, and yet when you think about what a mom does with a kid, a mom gives feedback every day every day. She doesn't wait for the end of the year performance evaluation to say, Matt, Josh, you misbehaved this year. You're not getting any present for Christmas, right? Mom will let you know right away, no uncertain term, what you're doing wrong. And she does it from a place of love. She does it and she still loves you unconditionally. And she does it because she wants you to be the best grown-up version of yourself possible. So when you're a leader and you, you're reluctant or you're delaying giving feedback or you're uncomfortable with something, uh, you know, with having to do that for somebody who works on your team, think about this, you know, go back and look at it as a gift. You're giving them a gift to become a better performer and you're helping them to just really correct a, a behavior. You're not there to judge their character. You're there to correct a behavior. Mothers understand that. And it comes very instinctively for a mother. So why can't we do the same thing in the business world? So, you know, I am here. Let me tell you how you're going to, you can be a better performer for me. And let me explain to you what's happening here and how it impacts the, the rest of the organization or it impacts your overall performance. And let's work on this 
and I and, and and you know doing this approaching it from this angle it makes it so much easier to give and much easier to receive also because when you have somebody who gives you feedback and says this is you know I'm doing you a favor I'm trying to make you a better person here and it's a lot easier to to accept it and you can't be in denial you know you have to embrace it and improve um, so I, I think there's many competencies like this that leaders can leverage from a mother's playbook and, and make their own life a lot easier. So, Well, Valerie, you're, you're making me miss my mom. Um, cause I know that I've, I've certainly learned a lot of lessons from my mom and my dad. Um, but I think we all recognize that not everybody had the same upbringing, right? Not everybody had the same, um, maybe loving family that, that hopefully the three of us did. Um, so how do we maybe get some of those lessons to them where they grew up very, very differently than what you might be describing in the book? Yeah, uh, I, I tell you, uh, often I get similar that question or, or people tell me, is this a book just for mothers? And I say, no, you don't have to be a mother. You don't even have to be a woman to learn from the book. And here's why. We all have in our life a mother or a mother figure. It could be a grandmother. It could be somebody else. And we've been on the receiving end of their parenting, of the mothering, right? And and then you can remember those times when you felt like a million dollars because your mom was being supportive, encouraging. She was empowering you. She was giving you responsibilities and you feel great. You remember that feeling, right? You also remember the times when your mother maybe had not set expectation very clearly and then she would hold you accountable. And then that felt unfair, right? So bottle that up and remember that. And remember now, think about the people who work for you and remember how important it is to set expectation clearly so that when you hold them accountable, it doesn't feel unfair. Remember that how it felt when your mom was empowering you or giving you, encouraging you, and now that felt. And, and, and you know, so that you remember to do that for your team members. So I think even if you're a man, all you have to do is reflect back on how you grew up and what you learned. And mothers are not perfect. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't a perfect mother or perfect leader for that matter. But I, I remember, uh, you know, I see my mistakes. And I also remember when my mom, who was not always perfect, when she did something that was unfair. And I take that learning and say, now I know what it is to be on the receiving end of that. And I need to get it right. So you can even learn from your mother's mistake. And, and use that to better understand the impact of emotional intelligence on what it's what is it like when somebody gives you feedback out of a place of love, uh, when somebody encourages you, when somebody supports you, when somebody has a long-term vision for you. Mothers do that. You know, they know that they got to read a book with their kid every night because they know that that's going to make the, the child an avid reader. And if the child likes reading, the child's going to have education will come a little easier and if education is great they get a great education there's a better chance they're going to be able to do the have the career of their choosing so mothers they already project themselves you know in the long term leaders need to do that too because sometimes we get buried in the everyday operation of a of a business and we forget to look down the line and think about you know what's what's our vision here what are we trying to accomplish five or ten years down the road so you know, so many things, again, you don't have to be a mom to read the book and learn from it. And the way, the way I, I wrote the book in each chapter, I start the chapter with a story of something, an anecdote or incident, something that happened with my kids. And then the second half of the chapter, I extract the learnings from it. And what I'm hoping is when people see the story, 
it you know it triggers like oh yes and I, I can relate i know exactly what she's talking about because either i experienced the same thing as a mother as a parent or i experienced the same thing as a child and and that hopefully will make it relate, relatable and when it's relatable people remember it and then they can implement the learning and and be reminded of what it's like to to be a great leader and a great parent for that matter yeah uh, Valerie, one of the things we're wondering about, and it's slightly changing course just a little bit, but um, but we know that you are a big advocate of uh, women in the workplace and fostering the growth and particularly bridging the uh, the gender gap. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about uh, what you do to help uh, advocate to bridge that gap. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, women need to do their part. And that is gaining the confidence that they can do it. And I think often women tend to hide the fact that, oh, I took some time off to raise my kids. And because it is perceived as a setback. And I beg to differ. I don't think it's a setback. I think you you got to practice your leadership skills, only you got to do that on your own kids. And you learned a lot as a mother. You learned about time management. Let me tell you, nobody time manages their time like moms because they can do three things at once. Um, you, learn, you learn about managing conflict when you have more than one kid. When you have a, a minivan with three kids at the back who are nagging at each other, trust me, you learn very quickly how to deal with that kind of situation. You learn how to deal with crisis situations. Somebody falls and gets hurt and needs to go to the emergency room. You know, you 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 know what it takes to to deal with those situations. So, if anything, a mother a, a mother or woman who stays at home keeps growing. And I think she, if anything, she sharpens, she hones her leadership skills while she's raising her kids. So, what I'm hoping is this will help give women more confidence that when they go back to the workforce, they they have those skills and they've sharpened those skills and they, sh they should advocate for that. Uh, now, the other thing is, obviously, men are the vast majority of leaders out there and they need to help recruit more women into the workforce, give them and hopefully if they read the book and they start thinking about everything they learned from their mom. And it's interesting because you, you ask men, you say, who is, you know, some of the most influential person in your life? The vast majority of people will say my mom. Okay, so then you recognize that your mom has this great, you know, was so influential in your life and she's taught you so much. Now, why is it now that you can't, you know, you don't value that enough to bring more of that skill into the workplace? So I'm hoping by engaging that, you know, that starting that conversation with men, it, they will see value in this, which I'm sure they do, but they, they, now it's about, you know, translating it into the workplace. Um, so that's the, for me, that's a very important uh, thing is educating everybody on this. Uh, and then it's helping women, mentoring women, giving them um, opportunities to move up the corporate ladder, um, giving them opportunity to get more flexible work, getting more um, uh, hybrid work or remote work when possible. And again, I think the, the pandemic was, that was a bit of a, uh, that was, there's a silver lining there. I think a lot of companies have been forced to it and hopefully that will serve women well um and, and then i think in the workplace is educating yourself uh all the unconscious bias all the things that women have to deal with where you know they're either being interrupted in the middle of meeting or they're not given credit for an idea that they present or uh, their voice is not amplified and that's where men i think can 
play a big role is uh, giving women their credit, making sure they they amplify their message, they mentor them, they help them move up through the through the workforce, and also the most important way it should start is equal pay for equal work, because today we know what what is it eighty four cents I think a woman makes for the dollar. So if you're not paying women equally, they can't afford afford childcare. They can't afford childcare. What do they do? They bail out. So okay, if you know, you do your math when you when you work when you both work at home, you do the math and you're like, okay, who makes the less money of the two? Uh, usually it's the woman. So that's already makes her the good candidate to stop working because you can't afford childcare. So okay, now mom stays home and you have talented women who are staying home because financially they can't make it work. So you know, paying them the right amount of money for equal work, equal pay, it's not very complicated, you know, to to be able to do that so that we retain that talent. And we know today that emo- the emotional intelligence that women bring to the workforce really makes a huge difference in the culture of the organization. So you know, let's not waste that talent that that is pretty, uh, um, you know, instinctive for women, and and leverage this and bring it to the workforce, so so we can be a better organization. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I'm kind of all over the place here, but but some those are some obvious solutions to bridging the the gap between uh, between genders in the workplace. Love it. Love it. Uh, Valerie, we're, we're running a little low on time, but there's something that you said earlier that I really want to make sure that we touch back uh, onto. And you said that, you know, someone has a long-term vision for you. And earlier you also mentioned, you know, leaders having a long-term vision, but it didn't click with me. I mean, that part obviously clicked, but it really clicked with me when you said someone has a long-term vision for you. So I'm envisioning a leader having a conversation with one of their team members and saying, this is what I see for you in the future, where so often the question is, what do you see for yourself? Where do you see yourself in five years? You know, and a young team member may not know. They may not have an idea of what that might look like. So I'm wondering if you can, you know, maybe share some thoughts about communicating that to a a young team member that they may not know where they want to go, but maybe as a leader, you're seeing that vision for them. Yeah, I think it's a much like a mom does for her children when they grow up is showing them the possibility what are the possibilities out there for for us as an organization, for you as a team member, or for you as a child? You know what what is the the possibilities are? There's many of them, and people don't know what they don't know. So a leader or a parent needs to show their you know either um, team members or children what are the possibilities out there? What could be? And I think that's that's one aspect of leadership we don't talk enough about. Because when you can clearly explain what could be, now you inspire people. Now you you motivate them to to get up in the morning and come to work. You give them a, a purpose and something they aspire to be. You don't, you know, if you come to your job every day and you do the exact same thing every day and you don't quite understand how that fit fits in the big scheme of thing or it, it gets old, it gets stale very quickly. But when you can show the purpose of somebody's job and how they're going to be able to grow with that, now this that gets me out of bed in the morning. That gets me excited about coming to work. And and it's the same with parenting, you know, showing the your kids when they're teenagers and helping them find their talent or their identity and and point them to all the doors out there. And there's tons of them. The possibilities are incredible. Kids don't know that. 
And a mom needs to show that to her children and, and leader needs to do that for the team members. That's simple. Excellent. Uh, it's been so fascinating. I've learned so much. Uh, Valerie, as we start to wind this down here, if people want to get the book, Manage Like a Mother, if they want to learn more about you, if they want to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? Uh, Amazon, Bonds and Novels, your favorite bookstore. It's going to be available everywhere. And uh, and then people can get hold of me on LinkedIn or I'm also on Instagram and I'm uh, cockerelconsulting.com is uh, for Dan and I, that's our website. And I love engaging with people. So if you have questions, comments, suggestions, whatever, and uh, do reach out. I love engaging uh, with the audience out there and uh, understand what they like, what they didn't like about the book. If they have ideas, if they have suggestions, anything, just don't hesitate. Uh, reach out to me. Well, Valerie, this has been a wonderful conversation. Again, makes me miss my mom. My mom passed away a couple mm. of years ago. Uh, maybe quick PSA uh, to everybody who's listening. If your mom's still around, give her a call today. Um, thank her for what she's done for you. Um, and for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.